It's currently closed with just about everything else at the moment with the Sydney lockdown. But one of the strangest tourist attractions, I think, in Sydney is Madame Tussauds at Darling Harbour. I, I can never quite bring myself to go in there, but I'm sort of morbidly fascinated by it. Uh, it's a gallery of wax dummies of famous people. Uh, I looked up the website. In one area, there's kind of famous Australians from history, Banjo Patterson, Ned Kelly, uh, Captain Cook. Uh, in another area, they've got pop stars like Michael Jackson and Britney Spears and uh, Lady Gaga. Uh, in another, there's Marvel superheroes like Wolverine and Iron Man and uh, Spider-Man. Uh, but because they understand geek culture, they've got DC comic superheroes in a completely different area, lest there be warfare and they kill each other. Uh, there's Wonder Woman, Superman and Batman. Our passage today is a bit like the Bible's own Madame Tussauds experience, but it's it's way more than just a, an interesting walk down memory lane or Oh, look over there, there's, there's a famous person you might recognise and be able to get a selfie with. Uh, this chapter has a really important purpose here at the end of the letter of Hebrews we've been looking at. It's here to inspire us to hold on to our faith in the Lord Jesus, to be like these people who held on and stayed the course. It's all leading to the incredible appeal we'll come to next week in chapter 12 and verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a large cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every hindrance and the sin that so easily ensnares us and let us run with perseverance the race that lies before us. Go on. Do you remember Robert De Costello? There's a famous Australian. He was uh, the world record holder of... The marathon, uh, he was Australia's greatest marathon runner. In 1981, he held the record and he was the world champion. Uh, and it, it, the marathon's a grueling event. And I don't know if you realise, I only just realised just the other day that the marathon is the final event in every Olympics. It's the last day and they award it at the closing ceremony just because it's such a mammoth event. When you become a Christian, you are not crossing the finish line you are jumping out of the starting blocks in an endurance race, a marathon called the Christian life. It's a race that we're on, a long one, a hard one, a taxing one. It's not a quick dash and then it's all over. Uh, when you start you're, on this one, you're, you're full of beans and anxiety, aren't you? You're eager to get going. You know, becoming a Christian is a very exciting thing. And, and there are certainly good times on the race where you feel like you're just in the groove, you're in the zone and everything's going right and you've got energy and, and, and that's great. But there's also plenty of times when it just seems like an extremely hard slog and you're exhausted and just putting one foot in front of the other on the Christian journey seems almost impossible. What's going to keep you going in those times? What's going to see you to the end? What's going to sustain you in it? What's going to keep you praying to an invisible God? What's going to keep you trusting an unseen Jesus and organizing your life and your time and your money, even your, your holidays and your retirement around the things that we hope turn out to be true? 
Well, Hebrews 11 is our great lesson on going the distance. You're on a running track inside the Olympic Stadium. It's, it's your race. And as you look up into the stands, you see some of the legends cheering you on, barracking for you. The great cloud of witnesses, they've already gone the distance. They've run the race and they are our example as we seek to do exactly the same thing. These people are the epitome of the kind of faith that we need. That's the thing that defines them, that shapes them, that they all have in common. The faith that the writer to this of the Hebrews letter has been calling us to have and to never abandon. You remember the end of chapter 10, he was talking about having full assurance of faith. Well, chapter 10 ended last week by saying, we are not of those who draw back and are destroyed, but those who have faith and are saved. Well, here is the lesson from the legends of old about what that faith is like. It's not just any old faith in anything you want. It's something particular. There's a faith that God approves of, that God esteems and values. And you can tell that's the case from the summary statements that fill chapter 11. There's points where he just stops recounting the people and and just summarizes what we've seen so far. So verse 1, now faith is the reality of what's hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. For this, for by this, our ancestors were approved. This is the kind of faith that God approves. Verse 13, these all died in the faith, although they did not receive the things they were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them, and verse 16, desiring a better place, a heavenly one, therefore God is not to be ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Or verse 39 at the end of the chapter, all of these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us so that they would uh, not be made perfect without us. Together, we are to trust God in the way that he approves, that he, he loves and esteems and values. You often hear people, especially in the media, uh, talking about faith as if it's a thing in its own right and that it's all the same and all equally good. That you know, yeah, While Hindus and Buddhists and Muslims and Christians all believe completely different things, they, they share this substance called faith that means we should lump them together in the same box. They are the people of faith. But, but it's not the same thing at all. Even Richard Dawkins, the atheist genetics professor, gets that, that all faith is not equal. He says this, he says, just having faith on its own is not an honourable quality. You could honestly believe that there's a flying spaghetti monster out there, which is, of course, his favourite illustration, the flying spaghetti monster. The point is, he goes on, is not that it's great that you believe, it's what you believe that determines whether your faith is a good thing. At least there's something he's dead right about. I just wish he'd admit that he's just as much a man of faith as everyone else in the world and his faith is resting on extremely shaky foundations. Because in the Bible, faith, the kind of faith that God approves, is not just believing anything, it's not believing in flying spaghetti monsters, it's not believing what whatever religion or thing or flight of fancy that you, you happen to like. It's believing specific promises that God has made. 
It's listening to him and believing him about his promises. That's why Hebrews has been so big on the word, what we do with the word of God, that when we hear his voice, we take it to heart. We listen to it and not harden our heart, that we hear his word which cuts through, that Jesus is that word, that final word from God that the letter started with. Because in a life of seen tangible things, the main intangible thing that you have to hold on to is words, promises. That's what we have from God. We have promises from him. It's a bit like having a check. Now, I'm old enough to have a checkbook and still have it here. Uh, and very rarely gets used. In fact, I could probably look at the stubs and, yes, it's been some some years. Oh, 2016, there you go. I used it five years ago, if I can count right. Uh, but but let's just say I write out a check here for, for $1 million. There you go. I'll even write the numbers. That's what you have to do on checks. There's the right number of zeros. And I make it out to, to David, who's just here behind the camera. He's, he's very excited at the moment to David Blouse or David Blows, as Lucy calls him, uh, to David Blows, $1 million. Uh, and so here you go, David. Uh, here is, oh, I don't know if he's going to come and get it now. Uh, here's a check. It's a promise. Uh, it's, it's words uh, written on a piece of paper, a promise. Uh, it, it really puts the focus, doesn't it, on the credibility of the one who makes the promise, the one who said the words. Uh, sorry, David. Uh, that's going to bounce. Can you trust their promises? Well, all these people who are listed did trust God and his promises. Take Abraham, for instance, the one who's mentioned more than anyone else in this chapter. They talk about him more than anyone else here. Abraham felt like he could trust God when he spoke, even on when God said ridiculous things that no one else in the world would handle. So much so that, do you remember what kinds of things he staked on God's promises, on God's words? He staked his family's life and well-being on them as he moved to a faraway land because God told him to. He he, he said, I'm going to give you a land. And, and he upped and went and lived in a tent for the rest of his life. He staked his sex life on the promises of God. God said he was going to have a child at 100 with his 90-year-old wife, Sarah, and, and they both just had to trust him on that. And lo and behold, it happened. Or verse 17, the most dramatic thing of all. Uh, it's an amazing verse as the writer reflects on the story of Abraham and his young son, Isaac, at the age of seven, uh, the son of the promise that he did have in his old age, the, the child of promise, he was on the verge of plunging a knife into his son to end his life in obedience to God's command, offering him as a sacrifice. Can you imagine a dad doing that? Can you imagine your dad doing that to you? And Well, at least not as a sacrifice in obedience to God. I mean, maybe if you'd stolen something from him, he was angry. But yeah, could you imagine that? Imagine the scene. Why would he go through it? Why would he do it? Well, verse 17, God had promised him 
that through this boy he was going to become a great family and Abraham really believed that promise. He believed the promise maker. And so verse 19, he considered God to be able even to raise someone from the dead. Therefore, he received him back, figuratively speaking. Now, God doesn't ask us to do what he asked Abraham to do in that moment. But he asks us to believe promises, not blindly, not irrationally, but on the basis of God's character. And that should be so much easier for us than it was even for Abraham because we've got so much more to go on in terms of evidence than Abraham ever had. Uh, Abraham just had the first few verses, the first few chapters of the Bible, 12 chapters of the Bible. We've got the rest of it, the whole testimony to account after account of God's faithfulness to his people, a faithfulness to his promises. He keeps his word. The promises he made to, to penniless widows and to mighty warriors, to, to kings and to average Joes and to, and to anyone in between. It, will you believe the promises that God has made to you? Even when he's making promises about bringing life back from the dead, because you really need to if you're going to endure as a believer, as a Christian. So the faith that God approves is trust in his promises. That's, that's the first thing the chapter's teaching us, which leads to the second point that it's making, that these promises that God makes are always about our future hope. And you see that in verses 8 to 10. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed and set out for a place where he was going to receive as an inheritance. He went out even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he stayed as a foreigner in the land of promise, living in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, co-heirs of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundation, whose architect and builder is God. Things hoped for things unseen. Pick it up in verse 13 where he summarizes the experience of of all the people, including Abraham, that he's mentioned. He says, these all died in faith, although they had not received the things they were promised, but they saw them from a distance, greeted them and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. Now, those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. When I was in primary school, uh, we used to have uh, what were called Let's Sing books. I don't know if you had them at all when you were at school. Uh, Let's Sing books, our kids don't have them these days. I'm not sure if they don't exist or just our school doesn't do them. Uh, But uh, (laughs) they were a weird mix of songs that the class would sing together. Uh, A weird mix of songs that were all 20, 30 or more years out of date so they could get copyright. (laughs) But they all had weird themes and funny ideas in them. Purple People Eater. Grandma's feather bed. He's got high hopes, like the the uh, goat that's trying to butt down a dam, or the the ant that's trying to uh, you know pull up a, a banana tree plant. <laughs> um, uh, one of the songs that our teacher loved, and we sang more than anything else, uh, and, and the class loved it too, was was a song called Camp Granada by Alan Sherman. It goes, "Hello, mother. Hello, father. Uh, here I am at Camp Granada." Camp is very entertaining and they say we'll have some fun if it stops raining. 
And, and the song goes on about all the disastrous things at the camp. Uh, the kid who's got uh, stung by poison ivy, the, the other kid who's caught malaria, uh, there's alligators in the lake, uh, and he ends up begging in the chorus, take me home, oh motherfucker, take me home. I hate Granada. Don't leave me out in the forest where I might get eaten by a bear. It, it's really a song all about being homesick. I don't know if you've ever been homesick, you've been on a camp like that and been homesick or lots of people experience it when they, when they travel, if they've travelled long, they get, they get to a point where they go, I, I just want to go home. That longing to be back in the familiar, to be back with the people that you know and love, to be home. Well, Abraham and Sarah were brought out of their country and they became exiles in a foreign land. And they had a longing, they had a yearning, but it wasn't a longing to be back where they came from. No, it was a longing for a different home, for something else entirely. Verse 15, if they were thinking about where they had come from, they would have had opportunity to return. But they now desire a better place, a heavenly one, a city designed and built by God. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. It'd be an amazing thing, wouldn't it, to be able to design and build a city from scratch. You can do it on Minecraft or out of Lego if you want to do it in the real world. But uh, hopefully God is a much better town planner than the people who designed Ingleburn with all the crazy cul-de-sacs and the bolt holes and, and so on. Or, or worse, the designers of Liverpool with that weird triangular angles and streets that you get completely lost and turn around trying to make your way back home. We've heard about the city that God's been preparing in Hebrews already, haven't we? The, the world to come about which we are speaking. He's mentioned that a few times. Everything there working the way that it should be under the rule of King Jesus. No dog bites, no climate change to worry about, catastrophes, no death, no dodgy human hearts and scam artists and trying to rip you off an email, no, no broken relationships. No distance from our God will be with him. Can you imagine yourself in that city? It'd be good for you to be there, wouldn't it? It's your place if you trust God's promises. That's your home. You belong in that city. It's, it's your place. Do you ever think of heaven like that? If you ever visit graveyards, I, you know, I think as I get older, I do things that I never thought I would. I visit graveyards and read the gravestones. But you can often pick out the, the graves of the Christians by what they say on there because they say things like, Robert Hayes called home. Called home. What a great thing because this is not our home here. He's gone to be in his home. And we need to remember that this is not where we truly belong. That is. We are alien and strangers here. The, the people around us, they, they live and breathe as if this is all there is and they think they've got to milk everything in this life for all it's worth because that, they've got to leave their mark because this is all there is. But for Christians, this is just a, a foyer. It's the entryway into the real home, something better. One way of thinking about, about ministry that we do with other people, whether it's 
leading a Bible study or preaching, you know, or whether it's helping in a kids group or being a teacher's aide in scripture or, you know, doing pastoral care and just visiting people or just encouraging another believer as they sit beside you in church. Uh, one way to think about that is, um, is that we're, we're in the business of preparing people for that future. Right? Do you think about the way that you engage with other people in the ministries that you do with the gifts God has given you as preparing people to go home? That's what we're doing. Do you have travelling companions in your Christian life who are helping you to focus on a better country? To remember this is not your home. Now, don't misunderstand me. This focusing on the future doesn't mean just sticking your heads in the clouds and, and zoning out of the real world and just kind of meditating and get away from it all and never do anything useful. I'm not talking about blocking out the reality that we have to live with or dismissing it as nothing, but rather having a right longing and a right hope and attitude that heaven is my true home and I'm only an alien and stranger here now will totally transform and shape life now in a way which God loves. And that's the final point I think Hebrews 11 is making that this future that God has promised that we trust will radically shape our lives now. See, the world wants to say that, that faith is a private thing, that it's something that's, that's inside in here. Well, in Hebrews 11, faith is not just something that's in here, no matter how much the HR department might want to say that it is. Uh, look, look at all the things that the people who are listed do. In this chapter, people who have true faith, it's approved by God in a future home, they are offering, constructing, obeying, going, receiving, desiring, considering, invoking, mentioning, refusing, keeping, crossing, giving, conquering, enforcing, stopping, quenching, wandering, escaping, refusing, and a few other things too. Now, let's be clear, he's not all of a sudden trying to smuggle in salvation by works at the end of Hebrews. Remember, we've been seeing over and over that our performance and religion will never give us access to God. It's nothing but the blood of Jesus shed for us. He alone gives us confidence, supreme confidence, 10 verse 19, to enter into that home. But it's just that when you believe in the things hoped for, the things unseen, and know that you've been saved for them, that that belief just can't help itself from bursting out into all sorts of different behaviours. Sometimes your belief in things unseen will make you do things that no one else around you uh, would do, like Noah in verse 7. By faith, Noah, after he was warned about what was not yet seen and motivated by godly fear, he built an ark to deliver his family. By faith, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Uh, I don't know if you've seen the movie Evan Almighty, the sequel to Bruce Almighty. Evan, who, who was the newsreader in the first movie, uh, he becomes the knower of his day and he has to build an ark in Washington, D.C., and you can imagine the fun that the movie has with you know, raccoons chasing him down the street and monkeys helping with the woodwork. Uh, but in the movie, people are constantly pointing and laughing and taunting Evan all the time. You can imagine that's what it was like in Noah's day, just pointing and looking and saying, what a weirdo. <laughs> uh, are you some kind of nutter, Noah? 
Uh, it, it hasn't rained for months. We, we live up here away from the sea level and why are you building a boat? But God had told Noah that he was going to destroy the world in a massive flood, things unseen. The people didn't believe any of it at all. They just carried on with their jobs and partying and eating and drinking and being merry until the day it started raining. Do you ever feel like the weird one for trying to warn people that they need a saviour? You spend all this time labouring away trying to make Jesus known and, and they're not interested. All right, you're looking for ways to get into conversation and you can just see them switch off when, whenever you're coming or when you bring that topic up. They, they, they don't seem to need this. They think, will there really be any judgment? That's not coming, it's not real. Noah was warned by God about things unseen and Noah is your witness and he would say to you, if he was still alive, if you take God seriously and when he says there is a judgment coming, you are no fool to live in accordance with it. You are no fool. Feeling like the weird one is a pretty normal thing for people who believe in things hoped for, things unseen. Remember Abraham and Sarah again in verse 13. They were strangers and exiles on the earth. They lived as foreigners, different to all the people around about them. Though they were wealthy, I mean, he had great flocks and herds and things, uh, they, they never settled down. They never planned a retirement of luxury or comfort. They never built a city themselves like so many of their other contemporary you know, land, uh, lords did. Uh, Abraham lived in tents his whole life. Though with the fortune that he had, it was probably glamping. <laughs> but, but if Abraham was here, he would say, don't get too settled down. This is just life on the road. Keep going, being different until you get home because home is going to be amazing. Moses is a, is a good example of what it looks like not to get too settled. Verse 24, by faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughters and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasure of sin. For he considered reproach for the sake of Christ to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since he was looking ahead to the reward. It's a great phrase, isn't it? The fleeting pleasures of sin. It's totally realistic, isn't it? That sin looks and feels pleasurable, really enjoyable, but it's fleeting pleasure. It goes. It doesn't give the same high. There's the, the regret and the guilt the day after. There's the addiction for more that never brings the same high. There's the, the disaster of hurt that comes you know, in life when we live opposed to God and his ways. Moses would say to you if he was here, they are fleeting pleasures compared to the substantial, lasting, eternal promises and pleasures that we will have because of God's promises. I wonder if there are particular pleasures of sin, fleeting pleasures of sin, that uh, you particularly need to keep an eye on at the moment because of lockdown. We're in this very weird situation and you know, lots of us have no one else other than maybe a couple of people around the friendship bubble or just our family or maybe we're just not associating with everyone and so we can do what we like. What, what sin is calling out to you like a siren 
from the mists, which will drown you if you listen to the siren's voice. What's, what's the sin that, that's luring you, tempting you? Is it porn? Is it, uh, is it bitterness? Is it, is it the temptation just to drown everything out that's going around on the news with alcohol? Is it the temptation just to whinge about anyone or everything to the, anyone who will listen? Is it anger and rage at the people you are having to be cooped up with? Make sure that the sins and temptations don't in, hinder you from enduring on the journey. Anything that might be holding you back that you need to get rid of for your life of faith so you might endure to the end. It's a good question to ask ourselves generally. How is your faith in things hoped for, things unseen, bursting out into action in your life, both in resisting and putting things aside, but also in in terms of putting the things on that are going to help, in terms of engaging with God, engaging with people, encouraging others. One of the things I, I love about this chapter is the great variety to it. There's no way this is a one-size-fits-all life of faith. They all have one faith, but it's totally different for all. It fans out in all kinds of different directions with people from all different ages and walks of life in different stages with all kinds of different consequences, sometimes positive, sometimes negative, everything right from you know, receiving back loved ones from the dead. That's incredible, right? And to, and, and those who make great friendships and get on uh, right through to those who have been sawn in two, right? And they're mentioned in Hebrews 11 as well. That leaves quite a lot of scope in between, doesn't it? Right? For what a life of faith might look like. But it will always be one where you stand out from everyone else as different, that you, where you stand up for Jesus, where you stand up for righteousness, where you stand up for those who cannot stand for themselves, where you you stand up and be counted no matter what the consequence is. And sometimes the consequences of having this hope in things hoped for and things unseen are really hard, aren't they? You look at the 35, it's not a pleasant list. Other people were tortured, not accepting release so they might gain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings as well as bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They died by the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins, in goatskins, destitute, afflicted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. And it's still not worthy. There's thousands of Christians suffering these things this very day. They wandered in deserts and on mountains, hiding in caves and holes in the ground. But these are our examples. These are the great cloud of witnesses showing us how to go on, urging us to the finish line. They line the stadium and they're cheering for you to make it home. Earlier this year, Locke and Nate Gideon had uh, baby Levi. I don't know if you saw the photos on Facebook. Uh, uh, congratulations to, to Locke and Nate. And Levi's now a couple of months old, but pretty sure Levi is the youngest member of our church that we have. Uh, just think little Levi might, you know, might live to 2121. 
right? There's a good chance he might live to see future King George's son or daughter on the throne of England. That's amazing, isn't it, to think about? Just imagine young Levi, as old Levi Gideon, as, as he tells the story of his mum and dad's generation to his geriatric buddy in their old people's home. And Levi starts to tell his mate that by faith, you know what my mum and dad did. They, they started new ministries in the southwest of Sydney. By faith, they, they didn't get drunk like everyone else was. By faith, they, they gave themselves to meet with God's people and to, to give and to plant new churches in the MacArthur region. By, by faith, they put their friendships and their popularity on the line. By faith, they joined in with the whole church of people who were like that, who, who constructed and refused and stood and reached and built and sent and stayed and went and trained and served because sometimes they saw great victories. Often, though, they were mocked for their faith. They, one or two of those people were put in jail. <laughs> and Levi's old mate leans forward pops in his false teeth and he says, buddy, why did they do it? What, what, what possessed them? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Why did they do it? And Levi leans back with his bald head and his wrinkles and he says, they did it because they believed in a city whose designer and builder is God. They live for God and for his kingdom. They live by faith. Not wishful thinking, certain of the things hoped for, certain because God has promised, sure of the future. And they knew their home wasn't here, it was in heaven. That's the faith that God wants, that he approves, the faith that he values and commends and esteems, is that the kind of faith that you have? Do you hear the cheers and encouragements of these great ones from the past? They certainly weren't all heroes, right? They're not heroes, they're legends, but they're not heroes. And I don't mean legends in the mythical sense. I mean legends like in the New South Wales rugby league team in legend sense, right? They, in fact, there's only one hero in the Christian Hall of Faith in the Christian Madame Tussauds. If you look up the characters mentioned in Hebrew 11, you find that they were full of doubts and that dubious behaviour and poor decisions and failure along the way. Uh, we're like them in that. But Jesus, he never fails. And while these people are cheering from the stadium all around, you can hear their voices, we're going to hear next week that that Jesus is the one who's standing at the finish line and looking at us and we're to focus on him and we're to look to him, the one who endured, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one to whom and for whom this whole future belongs. Jesus, who is not only the greatest example of endurance himself, he is the one who covers every one of our failures in our life of faith. And so look to him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, 
and then sat down at the right hand of your majestic throne in heaven. Help us to consider him who endured such hostility against himself so that we will not grow downhearted and weary. And Father, help us to learn from these people of faith through these generations of the history of your people who who knew their home was not in this world, who held on to your promises, who lived for something better, something more for you and your kingdom. And we pray that we might take encouragement from them, that we might learn from them, that we might stand and we might not put our hopes in this world and live for it as if this is all there is, but live for you, our King, our Saviour, our Lord, our Master, our Friend. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.